Episode 161 of the Bitcoin Podcast. I'm your first host, Marcello. Host number two, D. And host number three, Corey. Hey, I got some uh, some announcements. You yeah, guys you, wanna... got, you got announcements. Why don't you start hitting them with some announcements on things that are happening in the space? What's hot in the streets, Cello? Uh, there's no time like the president to discuss the future of currency. Uh, the Texas Bitcoin Conference is going to be going on next week. October 28th through 29th in sunny, beautiful Austin, Texas at the Canyon View Event Center. And they're giving listeners of this podcast a special deal, 10% off of tickets when you use the code word podcast. And that's all caps, like when you spell MF Doom, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, all caps, get 10% off. Uh, Just go to TexasBitcoinConference.com. Also, uh, if you head on over to Coindesk, uh, they have their 2017 most influential people of blockchain, and our very own Evan Van Ness from an Ethereum podcast is nominated. So please go support him. Show yeah, you yeah. love. Uh, this yeah, week yeah. in announcements, D tackled Simply Vital Health. So go check them out. Uh, last week I talked to you about Funfair. This week I'm going to talk to you about uh, Cryptonetics. I bought a little bit. And I'm starting to really like these pre-sales because they have like bonuses. So I got like a 50% off bonus. So I wanted to shout them out. Uh, they're kind of like a, a platform for trading and investing and learning about the markets, which is super helpful for me because I'm I'm starting to get into the market game. So uh, Cryptonetics, and you can go to Cryptonetics.com, C-R-Y-P-T-O-N-E-T-I-X. So check that out, guys. And um, each and every episode were brought to you by Pally. Uh, you might remember them when they were on the show. And you know if they're on the show, it's legit. And basically what they are are a social travel ecosystem uh, comprised of Pally Social, which is a mobile app that has been live since about April. And then the other part is Pally Adventures, which is a community marketplace where visitors can immerse themselves in new cities through unique experiences curated by local hosts. So this podcast is all about community, so is Pally. And they operate with a no-tolerance policy for abusive, malicious, or violent behavior. So if you use the app and you travel and you meet up with people, you can be safe. Uh, the August pre-sale sold out in 11 minutes, and they the crowd sale actually launched last week. Uh, so for more information and to get in on that, go to pally.co, and we hope to see you there. All right, that's all I got. Got a mighty big bulletin board of stuff over there, man. When we don't do mid, 
two weeks, man. The news piles up. Ah, that's what happened. How you guys doing this week? Izzy, I went to a cybersecurity conference last week. It was pretty boring. Tell me about the dubstep. Oh, man. It was like, first off, it's like a cybersecurity conference, which basically is like how to not lose your private keys or deter hackers or make yourself vulnerable to people getting in your systems and screwing things up and monitoring the things that need to be monitored for the networks that you operate, things like that. And I guess, I guess it's a hot topic. It's a, it's a big field. It's a really big field in terms of, especially for enterprises. And like I go in and it's like this really nice venue and it's just nothing but like pure loud dubstep. (laughs) And like, there's the hell where, where am I? <laughs> it's like the I don't know. It's a bit over over a bit overdone, but some of the talks are interesting. Everybody got a got a Skrillex uh little little doll in your in your gift bag. Cybersecurity's got the wub wub come in. Yeah, so why was it boring? What would it what would they have done to make it not oh, boring? Cello must love dubstep. Make it it, they could have made it more technical. Like I don't know. I, it was it was basically a conference for people to sell their platform and executives to come and try and buy things that are going to solve some of the problems that they have. It wasn't like so what you're, I could I didn't learn anything really. So what you're saying is it needed to be more boring to be more fun. Oh, <laughs> worth my time. Like I don't. I'm not. I'm not the demographic for buying services like these giant platforms for you know incorporating into your enterprise so people don't. Hack your shit. Like I'm more along the lines of like, how does it work so I can make a product as opposed to Wait. like learning things so that I can do my job better. I don't. Why do you have to go that. to it then? I don't know. My, well, my boss talked at it. He did a talk on, on blockchain oh. and its applications to cybersecurity or vice versa. Mm. Oh, so, so they were appealing to vendors more so educating people. Yeah. Boo. So it was nice. Went to comp- Tennessee. Not conferences were mostly like I'm trying to sell you something anyways. If I it's not so. dubstep, it's Katy uh, Perry. Yeah, that's maybe the case. I just there's a lot of meetups and conferences that are catered towards learning things and showing new technologies. And I don't know, maybe that's because I'm I'm used to going to conferences that are for academics. So you had maybe had like one guy, one sponsor that would talk about whatever they talked about, and the rest of it was like really, really, really dry, boring science. Of like the edge of science, which is usually dry and boring, and mm. then this is just like the exact opposite. It's like whoop 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 whoop. Welcome to Endpoint Verification Week, and it's like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Biometric Signatures. Yeah, is that kind of like how it was <laughs> so ridiculous? <laughs> you know, like the guy like running up on the stage with like the headphone mic, like. Welcome to EdgeCon, and like, <laughs> let me hear your voices. And then you hear like a, like a single guy clapping in the back. It'd be funny if the, like all the laser uh, special effects were just like two dudes from behind the curtains with a bunch of laser pointers that were different colors. Yeah. That, that, this they put a lot of money in production. I'm curious if I don't, I'm hoping DevCon's not like this. I, I, they have a lot of announcements. I hope talk it is. About, they talk about like real projects there's going to be a lot of people trying to sell you stuff because 
that's basically the space right now is everyone starting platforms and startups and trying to then gain the attention of the community so they can make money and do that stuff. But like DEF CON's at least had a track record of bringing developers and letting them understand like the current bleeding edge of the technology. Like we'll see at least see talks on, you know, Casper new things that are doing things that are actually worth their salts or changing, changing the game. I hope. I hope you get a selfie with Vitalik before we leave. Only if you make that same face that chick made in that in that picture that I posted to you guys, where you take a picture with those two girls, and that one girl was like, "Why am I? Who is this?" I don't want to selfie with them. I'm going to talk to them for a while. I'll let you guys go for it. I need to I need to pick his brain on plasma, as well as Joseph Poon. I need to just. I saw you tweet him. I I tweeted both of them. Actually, I I DM Joseph Poon and tweeted Vitalik. Because there's no there's no good it's, it, information on like the it could be I guess because there isn't like a protocol wherever they're do, wherever they're doing protocol development or standards or trying to push the technology for plasma, it's not public as of right now, and so I'm trying to find out where that's being done so I can be a part of it because I want to push that technology or like try and develop it and help figure it out. Uh, Colin, Boucher, who's a part of the Slack, um wrote a three-part series on plasma as of like, why do we need it? Why enterprises need it now and what it is and how it works and like what kind of the the future will look like in a world where plasma is being implemented. I actually read that. Yeah. He does a good job of like telling you or making you understand like what, where the problem is right now and how plasma solves it. Yeah. He was, he was saying that, uh, that I found interesting that, like most scalability improvements have come by relaxing some aspect of security versus flexibility. Yeah. So he kind of dove into there wondering what, if there was anything like that at play. So I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, man. Colin's awesome. He's uh. when me and him aren't arguing about um, racial tension, then we're usually agreeing on all things crypto. He so, gets the space. I really like your article. He spends a lot of oh. time. He spends a lot of time like digging into the technicalities of things and trying to make articles that are at least approachable to so you can understand the problem or how things work from like a an easier to approach level. I just need more so technicalities and they don't exist right now. Let's talk about plasma, man, because a lot of people don't get it. I never got it. To me, it was like you know solid liquid gas and then sometime later in high school the teacher started like and then there's plasma and i was like what the why you gotta do that shit teacher like there's why are you gonna add another state of matter when i just was getting used to those three and how they operate so what come on lay it on me you want the physics version of plasma or the blockchain version of plasma? <laughs> I know. I was just, it was a play on words. Yeah. I actually uh, want to talk about plasma. Like the, I know the physics version of plasma. I was talking about the um, plasma, right. plasma. Yeah. So like currently there's, there's a problem with, with running a private node. If you want to run a private network, Ethereum network, you are not basically just running something that has no real doesn't have nearly as much backend security because 
your warrant tying into the giant proof of work that's being done validating the mainnet. But if you work on the mainnet, you are kind of subjugated to the transaction limit that the mainnet has because everyone is validating everyone else's transactions. You lose a lot of the security, so on and so forth. And so if you think about like enterprise level systems that need to communicate, if they want to build a blockchain that takes over that communication within their within their enterprise, they're going to need basically more transactions than the entire network of Ethereum just for like one, one subsystem of their enterprise. So if they try to join the mainnet, they can't really do anything of value for the size of their company because they just can't do enough transactions. So you like as of right now, you either build your own network that kind of does the job as Joseph Poon puts it, you're role-playing because you don't have a lot of the security guarantees of the main network because you're not running proof-of-work. And if you are, you're not running enough proof-of-work that someone can't hijack it. Or you are you just can't do enough transactions on the main net or it's too expensive. So what Plasma does is a way to link those two things together so that you can run your own private blockchain but still tie into the security guarantees of the main network. And you do that by creating like a tree of blockchains where the main net, the main Ethereum network becomes the root, like the main base layer. And you just timestamp, basically Merkleize all transactions of whatever blockchain you're running into the main net for verification purposes. So you can Great contracts. You'll create a smart contract, and the, and the authenticators, the people that are validating the, the the transactions on your own blockchain, your own private blockchain, are staking a bunch of ether as authenticators of that blockchain into the main net, which allows you to trust that they're doing things correctly. Because if they choose them wrong, you can prove that they've done something wrong on your private blockchain, and you can take away their money. Yeah, and this is all happening with computers. Right, so that's important for people listening that are new to understand. Like, it's not like you're going into this computer program and you're like, "I'm going to make sure that they did this correct." Like, no, it's computers are doing this. This is machines yeah. talking to machines. Machines talking to machines. So, yeah, so that's that's what this whole thing was predicated on. Although, as more and more humans get into it, like, I think humans have a pride problem. Like, they try and just spread their human splooge all over all things. This whole stuff is about machines talking to machines, even Bitcoin, which is why I kind of like I trust machines way more than I trust people like and I always will. But it's it's not like people doing this. And I think I'm starting to get a vibe that all the new people I talk to, they think that it's like humans checking this. Like, like, who's doing these calculations? It's like, man, it's computers, man. Do you think you want to think there's a human sitting around doing like PETA? Peta calculations per second. I don't understand. But anyways, I just want to clear that up for people and then get mad at them at the same time for being ignorant. All I right, think what's going. important, it's important to note is like if one, if you don't know how to Merkle tree works, the 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 structure of how all of this is very much like a Merkle tree. So Merkle trees are used in all blockchains basically to order all of the transactions in a block efficiently. So you can say if you had a thousand transactions, you're going to order all of those thousands of transactions 
by hashing things together and then hashing those hashes together and then hashes the, hashing those hashes together all the way up until you have one hash left, which is basically the summary and ordering of all of the transactions that you've put together. And so the size of that resultant hash, like the, the fingerprint of all these of all these transactions, is the size of a single transaction hash. So you can concatenate or like summarize or bring together a bunch of data into a really small, efficient piece of data. Mm-hmm. So if you think, so that's how that's what we put in the headers of each block in a blockchain, so that we can we can guarantee that a block contains certain transactions in certain orders, and still be able to pass all that information around in a small packet of information. So if you think about that idea, taking a bunch of information and then summarizing it into a very, very small package. You're doing the same thing in terms of like blockchains. You're, you're, a plasma blockchain is like all of the transactions. And then you Merkleize all that information, put it in order. And then the root, the, like the, the Merkle root or that final summary transaction hash gets embedded into the mainnet every certain amount of time. So it's like so you, factum. Yeah, so you can prove that all of these things happened on a certain blockchain without having to embed all of the information of those things into the blockchain. And yeah. then you can do this continuously. So a plasma blockchain can have other children plasma blockchains. So you end up building a tree-like structure of blockchains as opposed to a tree-like structure of transactions that we're used to seeing. And you can scale the number of transactions while you know maintaining privacy for certain blockchains. So company can have mm-hmm. a plasma blockchain and then root itself into the main Ethereum blockchain while maintaining a lot of privacy. And what's nice about this, you can use the smart contracts, the staking system built into it is that you can move tokens throughout all of these layers. So I can take Ethereum off of the main Ethereum net network and move it, physically move it. It leaves the main net and goes to my plasma blockchain. And I can move that ether around my plasma blockchain or any of its children. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when I'm done using it there or whatever ERC20 token that I'm using in my plasma blockchain, any of my users can then take it out of that plasma blockchain and put it back into the mainnet. So this is what we've been looking for, inter-blockchain communication. You can create blockchains, route them into the main one, which is like your like if you think about it from a internet versus intranet scenario this is exactly what that is and allows you to communicate between the intranets and internet which is huge you can scale as far as you want to scale and the main ethereum network becomes a settlement layer or like main internet where everyone can communicate mm-hmm. it's just not like the technology is there joseph poon says that like we can do this now there's nothing that needs to be done further to allow this technology to work. We just need to develop a standard communication protocol that does this, and it can be it can be implemented, you know, very soon, which will be happening very soon. How hard is it to do that? Uh, you have to change the way Solidity works. So there's going to be probably a superset language that defines how parent blockchains communicate with children blockchains. And vice versa. So new types of functions will be created so that you can say parent blockchain do this after parent blockchain does that. Children 
blockchain do this? So you can move money from parent to children. You need some form of communication between parents and children up and down the entire tree structure from the roots to all of the leaves so that you can what move about money. When some of those children reach adolescence and they don't want to talk to their parents. What's the, you need to, because you're staked into the parent node. You have money, you have money on your parent node. Like that's where the, like the trusts and the validators comes from is that they've staked money as an authenticator in the parent node. I guess you could break off and stop doing that, but then you just have to trust that the validators will make like remain trustworthy. And what's important to note is that the validators or whatever the consensus model is for each of these children is whatever you want it to be. It doesn't have to be proof of work. It can be proof of stake, proof of authority, delegated proof of stake, things like that, that aren't proof of work or it could be proof of work. So it's side chains yeah. without Blockstream. Yeah. And, and it you looks don't, like it's no, going like, to be more successful no because it's Vitalik. And you have smart contracts, which you still don't have in Bitcoin. I mean, MAST, which is the Merkleized abstract, abstract syntax trees, will start to create yeah. a more robust programming language for Bitcoin. But it can barely even fork on the block size without creating new coins or contention. I don't, I don't see anything of value coming in Bitcoin without contention over the next couple of years. Bitcoin is starting to piss me off so much. Like you just, you can't fork without something happening or somebody taking advantage of it, creating a new airdrop, increasing the confusion around things. Like Ethereum just That's forked. That's what I was talking about. It just made Byzantium that, in, and that included cryptographic primitives from elliptic curve cryptography. Zero problems, zero issues, zero contention. There's See, that's no what I was talking about, about earlier with human splooge. Like, Whoa. Bitcoin is getting so human now. What's up, Chell? No, continue. I'm edge of my seat with where you're going with this. I mean, humans, that's Bitcoin is getting so human now. Like, it, there's, like, it used to be a point where it was just a tool. But now it's a tool being used by some fucking huge tools. <laughs> like, like Ver, I hope you're not listening to this right now, but I keep trying to get you on my show because I really, I just want to talk to you, like, because I like talking to crazy people sometimes. It's not an ambush, Corey. You said it's an ambush. No, I just want to see like what's what's going on in that head of yours, and then I also want to talk to people on the other side too. Like, what what are you guys doing? Like, this is about machines talking to machines. You just just go sit the fuck down for a second, and like let people work that are working so but the politicization see that's one thing that the ethereum community is basically using as their it's very fortunate that all this human splooge is going on on the bitcoin side which allows a lot of development and good work to be done on the ethereum side but i guarantee you if ethereum shares the same fortune as bitcoin where it's got four digit prices and the valuation is high, and people's power is at stake, and it's not just about technology and fun, the same thing's going to happen in Ether. You can't change humans. Like, there's not going to be any more hard forks with cool names of leaders in the past where everybody's just like, this is all great, and everything's a joke and fun. Because things don't... 
things don't really work like that with us. So as soon as Ether starts to become this, as I guess successful as Bitcoin is, it's going to come through the same struggles. What metrics does it need to increase in other than other than crazy price like uncontrollable price rise? Does it need to do in order before it's just as legitimate as Bitcoin? It's got to have some years in the game, son. It's I mean it's only got two. Think about how fast it's gotten to to be as big as it is, and the amount of infrastructure that's been built behind Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, I know all that. Like, it's growing fast. Transactions per day, transactional volume is greater. All the things are pretty much better. The brain trust behind Ethereum is now, like, all behind Ethereum. And Bitcoin's just got a few believers left in the game. Like, I get all that. But it's value, what's but gonna it's, happen? it's unstable value. Like, Bitcoin is a lot of unstable value. I mean, think oh, about think about this, this this scenario of how Bitcoin currently operates with price. So the general ideology behind Bitcoin in terms of owning it is probably now mostly storage of value investment, which means that if you buy it, you're buying it so you can hold it so that it gains in value later. You're not buying it to use it unless you're that's an increase unless you're kind of like the third world country where your your current fiat system sucks but if that's the case then most people who buy it will hold it which decreases which drastically decreases the supply of what other people can currently buy and because of that you have a either static or growing demand for diminishing supply which should increase the price but as you do that as you increase the price of bitcoin and no one's using it you're also increasing the fees of Bitcoin, which which starts to narrow out a lot of the people who need to use it. Smaller countries where, you know, 50 cents, $1 capital controls, things like that are bad and they need to move their money or store their money elsewhere or use something that doesn't, you know, lose its value immediately once they put, put their value into it. You're, you're, you're actually shoving a lot of those people out because it gets too expensive to actually use for the amounts they'd like to use yeah. it for. But we're we're also speaking in the current, right? We we we're also speaking in the current without looking into what could be. Like, here's the thing: is if Bitcoin keeps headed on the trajectory it's headed, it will be a currency, and that implies it has to have a massive, massive market cap to sustain commerce. So, in the phase that it's in right now, where it's just trying to get into store of value or leave store of value and go into medium of exchange. Nobody's going to use this shit. Why would you? If you could see clear as day that, oh, if all this money's coming in here and they want to build financial products off of it, derivatives, swaps, options, they want to do that with this currency, why am I going to spend it? I'm going to spend you just heard dollar pizza. I don't think you just got the grasp what I just said. I heard exactly what you said. As what the I'm price rises, that, like, you can't use it. It becomes unfeasible to actually use. And if the price keeps rising where people think it's going to go – that gets exacerbated and it gets worse and worse and more difficult to use. You're only being able to transfer very, very, very large sums of money, which a lot of people who'd like to use the system can't do. Like it, so then, You need to increase usability. You need to be able to do transactions for a small amount while the price continues to rise or at least do more transactions. You can't do either one of those things. 
But then what it sounds like what needs to happen actually is that in order for there to be a medium exchange point, then there needs to be a change on the fee structure. Or your increased transaction like increased transaction volume, like the fees need to come down. Or you need a layer two technology. To you need a layer two technology where you can do multiple, multiple transactions for a small amount. Like Lightning Network will help. Or sorry. Yeah, Lightning Network will hurt will help, but only for certain types of use cases. And for a payment channel to be opened in the Lightning Network, you need at least two transactions or two transactions exactly. One to open the channel, one to close the channel. And so if not- all of the transactions you do in between those two transactions doesn't add up to the amount it costs to do two transactions, then it's not worth it, which then shoulders out a lot of the use cases of what you could do payment channels for. If you can't increase usability, then you're just you're, you're just basically doing like I don't know I don't want to call it a Ponzi scheme because that's not exactly true, but no, you're doing you something that's completely unsustainable. It literally, it literally turns into the digital like the digital congruency of gold that you can't use. Cool. Yeah, like you can use it. It's just it's, really expensive. it's unsustainable. Just like the like, price just can't continue to rise. Like just if the price right. rises because more and more people get into it, but no one's using it, and that's the motivation for getting into it is because more people are getting into it. That's not utility. That doesn't do anything. You can't do things with it. Then it's useless, by definition. I don't. I don't. Know. I, I don't know. I just I, there needs to be more utility in Bitcoin. It needs to be more things built on top of it that allow people to actually true. transact. You can't do things with art, but it just sits on your wall. And it's not. That's that's a bad argument. I'm just saying that. I got, I'm not sure. I guess if you want to consider it just a storage of value, I think that's It's not that's just dumb. a storage of value, but when something is coming from the transition from storage of value to medium exchange to unit of account, there's processes. And just because we've never lived through it, and there's not a lot of history on it because money is such this weird natural evolution of the human existence that nobody sits around and writes about transitions throughout time. We just look at stuff and make assumptions. But when you go from storage of value to medium of exchange, there is that long chasm of time where enormous values move into this thing before people hit the switch in their heads like, okay, let's make this usable. Because obviously people find value. We need to find a way to exchange it. Now, I hate to be this guy because I was going to make an argument against it early in the show. The guy that's like, hey, we're going to figure it out one day. There's lots of smart people. But I don't have to be that guy because I put myself in this position that if there is a massive amount of value in the Bitcoin, we're going to figure out a way to make it a medium of exchange. Especially because it's digital and it's easy to do. Because it, it doesn't make any sense for the world to have a $15,000 Bitcoin that can do no things. There's people in places that are going to say, let's get that capital moving. Let's put it to work. Here's a financial tool that says, if you move your Bitcoin and spend it on this thing, then you're going to multiply your Bitcoin. That's what we do as humans. That's You try and get the value out of silos. Well, that's what we do in capitalist world. And capitalism is winning. <laughs> So I'm saying it's a store of value now, 
And it seems ridiculous now, but when all that value is in one giant silo, we're going to figure out a way to make it a medium of exchange. Or at a bare minimum, figure out a way to exchange it without the Bitcoin network. But still, that value is not just going to sit in one giant pot. I think that's ideal. Like that's that's the ideal scenario, and that's what I would like to happen. But I, like realistically speaking, judging how things change, upgrading the software within the Bitcoin network is so contentious and difficult to do. It's going to take too long, and that that money is going to flow somewhere else. That's my that's my personal prediction. Like the price will rise; it's going to continue to rise until it becomes almost unusable. And that price is just going to leave. And you're going to see a drastic price price reduction. Drastic price reduction into something else. Where people can actually do what they want to do. And they figure out the storage of value. Or like the, the medium of exchange is somewhere else. Because you can't change anything. The price does come down with the medium of exchange. It has to. Because transaction velocity goes up. That's is, that why, is that why you don't hold any, Corey? Probably. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think it's going to come down. I, only, I hold a very small amount of Bitcoin in comparison to everything else that I hold. <laughs> I actually do, too. <laughs> I do, you guys, have do you guys more own of everything at least one Bitcoin? Bitcoin? I have, oh, yeah, yeah, I have at least one. I had a few. I'm just some, saying, some like, people would say that if you have one, that's not a small amount. Well, I've been in the game for a long time. <laughs> we've, I've, I've been in Bitcoin cryptocurrencies, blockchain, whatever the hell you want to call it. Since 2012. That's that's a decent amount of time. Yeah. I should have at least one Bitcoin. Always. Um, I get fired up when I'm trying to make my point. You should. We're passionate about this. I just like, we view it from different perspectives. My, my, my sole perspective of what I care about is utility. I want this technology to make people's lives better to allow them to do things that they could do better and more efficiently for cheaper with less trust and or mediation or do new things that they couldn't do before, which allows them to communicate with the people they care about, whether it be value or exchange or whatever, better than how they can, could, could do it. And if technology is stagnant, I'm going to go somewhere else. Like that's all I care about. Like value will, 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 will come later. That's it's a, it's a, it's an obvious consequence of providing new technologies that allow people to do things better or newer. Money yeah, comes values. Value is just a reward for re- services rendered. And I'll always, always think that. This but, is going to change the world, and I want to be a part of that. Money comes along with that because if people want in something, yeah. they're going to they're gonna, you know, pay their money to get into it. Yeah, aren't, aren't things like Plasma and OMG, they're going to raise the price of Ether just because it's valuable tech. Yeah. It, yeah. Plasma technology yeah. will will at least first. I mean, this this type of technology, just like payment channels and state channels, will be able to be used on all of the blockchains eventually. But it's going to get used first on Ethereum and probably massively on Ethereum because they have smart contracts, which... They have they're they're almost they're also the leading technology in smart contracts, and have the most robust tools for building them and using them and testing them and trying them out. So when you combine all the things into a single platform, you get a synergistic effect that that trumps everything else. It grows too fast because that's where everybody's going, which makes it grow faster. 
Yeah. And it's it's going to make Ethereum more valuable because when you're executing all these smart contracts and more and more and more people get into the space trying to use this technology, the thing that runs yeah. the network becomes more valuable. The network effect. That's like you're growing the utility of the network and not speculation of the utility of the network. You can't guarantee speculation. Those are just bets of what the future use case is going to be. If you continue to grow the current usage and the technology that grows the usage, then you can make really, really, really good predictions on the price of the underlying asset for that utility. That's how I basically figure out, like try and decide where I put my money. If you put this hashtag, this is an investment advice, but you look at my portfolio, it's mostly ether. (laughs) It's, it's mostly ether at this point because it has most, the most growth potential. Oh, because the tech is better. I mean, I'm just being honest. Like the tech is better and the brain trust is in ether. And like the idea just for me, like looking at it, like I'm just now getting my feet wet in the whole IT game and and seeing how development is done and seeing how developers work. But just if you have a dApp and you need a thing, like you need it in your in your program, then you just tie another already existing dApp into it because it's an ERC20 token and you can just you can just the synergy is there. So it's like, "Oh, I need to have a decentralized identification platform in my app." Oh, cool. Let me just tie in whichever one of these fucking dApps is already doing it, boom, good to go. I, I sent you guys I sent you guys an app or a dApp invite if you guys wanted to test drive it. But what? Sent it twice. For what? Invite. Oh, for the app yeah. my company's building. Yeah, I didn't that, get that. Are you, are you on it? I didn't get that either, but are you on an NDA? No, they encourage people to Test drive okay. it so we right. can test so we can it. get feedback. I'll test drive it. Um, yeah, just send me the link. I'll try it out. But um, we should move. We want to talk about SAFs. Let's let's talk yeah, about SAFs after the interview. That was a that was a good conclusion, or 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 at least a nice wrap yeah. up of an argument between what's going on in the space, maybe. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's um. Well, let me give a quick overview. So people like when they bring up saft i want people to excuse me understand exactly what they're talking about um basically it's uh, it's an attempt at an open source framework legal framework to guide blockchain startups on how to launch a legal and ethical ico because i feel like that's why a lot of people have problems with icos major point of focus for regulators is whether a company is in its formative stages with just a white paper uh, like I have a white paper and then there's minimal level of work, which would be a pre-sale or whether the platform is already active and is testing actual tokens, which would be a post-sale. So for me, it's after this interesting framework because it, it's going to mitigate potential loss due to security issues. So if someone like hacks a smart contract and then for algebraics data, they're using safflaunch.com and they really stress security. You know, they, they want to know the customer there's accreditation checks for issuers. So for me, it's it's all new, and I'm kind of interested to see you know what the SEC comes out with. Mm-hmm. I got I got I got peaked interest into this company algebraic data. 
uh, because they've invented a new mathematical discipline called data algebra, which is cool shit, um, which is very funny because when I was in college and I was studying set theory, I remember thinking to myself, there's no reason for me to know these hieroglyphics. There's no reason ever for me to know what all these symbols mean and how to write a paragraph in symbols. Um, but lo and behold, five years later, I run into this book called The Algebra of Data, where they've applied set theory uh, to data structures um, in order to hasten up querying functions that currently exist. So um, there's a lot of fascinating work being done there. So anyways, without further ado, here it is. Major things to get into today. We have the top guys at Algebraic's data who are using entertainment to bring crypto into the mainstream, and they're going to be launching a SAFT or a simple agreement for future tokens this upcoming week. Uh, and today on the show, we have Charlie Silver and Robin Bloor. And let me just give a quick surface level introduction before I, I let them take the wheel. Uh, Charlie is the CEO of Algebraics Data, and Robin has been kind of leading, been a leading advocate for data algebra, and he is now the senior VP of communications. Uh, so welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And uh, I'll kind of let you guys take turns, kind of give us a quick introduction on kind of who you are and kind of what led to this giant, ambitious undertaking that is Algebraics Data. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Marcello. Um, I came to this company uh, after building a one of the original big data advertising companies called realage.com. We had over 40 million uh, users with 300 data points each, all about their health, wellness, and their lifestyle. And I, and I was one of the original creators of a dot-com company that used data to connect people to advertisers. After that company got sold to the Hearst Corporation, I got pitched the idea that all this data could be represented mathematically. And I was very intrigued because the power of the mathematics can help do things that machines, computers can't do today. Uh, and particularly on the analytics side, query performance, et cetera, et cetera. I got very engaged. I started investing in the company uh, and eventually took over as the CEO. Along the way, um, Robin, uh, we met Robin, who was a PhD in mathematics, who worked with our founding mathematician, Gary Sherman, and he even made it more clear to me how powerful this idea of data algebra was, and he's been a big inspiration, not only the power of data algebra, but taking this project into the blockchain to develop our, uh, a cryptocurrency uh, where people can share and monetize their own data. Yeah, the I, I guess the major thing that um, kind of um, stimulated my interest in algebraic data was that I've done a maths degree, so um, I was always a mathematician, but I've been in computing for, I don't know, 25 years, maybe 30 years, and it was quite clear from the studying, particularly of database technology, that there was no um, formal mathematics of data. And in fact, a lot of things that were 
going on with databases could be done better uh, in the mathematical sense. So what was going on at algebraic data was of keen interest to me. And it turns out, you know, that I eventually, um, Algebraics hired me to write the book on algebraic data with Professor Gary Sherman, who invented it. Um, and eventually it just became clear that this could be applied um, to any large-scale problems that uh, involve data. So big data, but also simply very large file systems and things like that. And then earlier this year, the idea was, you know, it began with the idea of how would we apply this to a blockchain um, kind of environment? And gradually the idea involved uh, to, um, looking at um, individual data and what we could do with individual data. Well, we could obviously represent it in terms of data algebra, but the business idea began to form. And it had a lot to do with the way that, you know, with Charlie's history but that it would possibly be a lot easier for us to go after the data of individuals and do something with that because nobody's focusing on that. Um, and then it just evolved into, well, they own their data. Um, maybe we could help them monetize their data. And then the idea of a um, permission-based advertising network came up. And... Yeah, both of us, you know, in talking about this, just got more and more excited at the possibility. So that's where we're heading, effectively. Well, I think it's important to note that, uh, especially now, given the environment of, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchains, is that algebraic data has been around for around a decade, and it's not just, you know, some brand spanking new team uh, of a of a bunch of people who got together like last week. Um, you guys have working business models have been around for a while, and I want to actually. So you have about nine patents and patents in this data algebra field. What are some of the like successes that you've had as a business uh, with some of these patents that you're kind of rolling into what you're doing with the token? Well, because this technology is such a fundamental technology in computing, our company has been much more of an R&D type company. We had to prove out that data algebra was a universal model, that it can represent data in any format. And we've really taken, it's not 10 years, it's, it's more been like six or seven years of proving out the mathematics and that it can represent relational data, graph data, but that um, and, uh, data in any format. And we've been more of a R&D company waiting for the right application. And that's when the blockchain uh, started becoming more and more uh, clear that this is the next big wave of disruption. We decided to really focus all in on applying our technology to the blockchain and helping people monetize their own personal data. So with that, I, I see that you, with helping people try to monetize their own personal data is, is quite a bit of a task, which requires a lot of people, like in order for it to work, it requires a lot of people to actually use the platform. Is you, you, ultimately, the way I see it is you'd like to become almost the universal search engine of personalized data that they give the, like they give the permission to be searched for. Uh, in order 
to become that, they need to put that information onto your platform so that it can be searched. Is that right? How do you plan on getting those people onto the platform to then start to become that you know database to be searched? Well, the way our network is going to work, it's going to start on the mobile phone where people will register with minimum information. And if they choose to participate, we're going to start in the vertical of entertainment where people will essentially just share their gender, zip code, birth date. And that's really all the information uh, for the minimum viable product. And then they're going to get paid cryptocurrency to watch movie trailers, television trailers, listen to music. And the idea here is for this to go viral, where we're bringing cryptocurrency to the mainstream by allowing people to be entertained. Uh, it's very hard to promote entertainment products, and that's going to be the first vertical that we attack. As the audience matures, we're going to be developed functionality with this personal secure vault where people will then store more and more data. And if they choose to share it, then advertisers can send them advertisements with an offer to say, here's 100 ALX or Alex coin to watch our ad. So it's not really a search engine. It's more of a advertisers will bid for users' attention. Hmm. And a, Go ahead, Joe. In regards to the ALX token that you just mentioned, uh, Robin, you were in Forbes the other day, and you said that investors are running scared of some of the altcoins, particularly the coins whose utility is questionable. So with the ALX tokens front and center here, how do we go about restoring faith in this department? Well, I don't think there's a huge lack of faith. I think there's a huge um, – I mean, the market's very young, and it seems to me very comparable to the way the dot-com market was in, say, 1999. There's a large number of um, different business models, and a lot of them, as far as I can tell, um, are unlikely to be successful is the kindest thing to say. There's, there's certainly, in, in one way or another, there's certainly been a struggle in the press for people to explain what cryptocurrency is. And I think a lot of the nervousness about cryptocurrency is really that people don't even understand exactly what's going down. But it's a very dedicated to community that is now in the millions that doesn't have any problems like that. Um, I think the thing that we're doing that makes a big difference and will possibly make a very big difference quickly is that, you know, even though there may be, you know, a couple of million people interested in cryptocurrency, um, we're going to put it in the hands of multi-millions. Uh, and when we do that, it'll just become much more natural for people once they um, become familiar with what we're doing and to use cryptocurrency. And in that way, you know, the way that I see this happening is the way that credit cards took off in the sense that initially only a few people used them. There was maybe tens of thousands, then millions. The same thing's going to happen with cryptocurrency. I don't, there's no doubt about the technology. Nobody's ever been any, able to demonstrate that there's any problem with the technology. But there are a lot of business models that are in the market right now that I don't expect to succeed. Okay. So 
could you elaborate a little like why why don't you expect them to see, succeed is it is it that they're just missing the mark on what this technology offers or they're just blatantly well, he, awful <laughs> no I, I, I mean let's you know ideas like you know dental coin or something like that may sound weird but it may be good ideas um, it depends upon exactly what the business is trying to do um, I divide the cryptocurrencies into two one of them are genuine payment mechanisms like Bitcoin is and are being used um, to make payments or to transfer money from one person to another. The others are utility coins. What we're creating is a utility coin. The value of such a coin is the value of the activity within the business itself. So if um, algebraic data manages to um, get a, a revenue stream of one billion, let's say, uh, dollars of advertisers, uh, advertising passing through to the, the customer base, then you've got, you've got something by which you can value the utility of the coin, the coins enabling that kind of ac uh, advertising activity. So the value is related to it. I don't think there's any mathematical formula for that right now, but there will be a relationship. Um, and Thus, we are a utility coin. The coin is worth something because it does something. Makes sense. So, so if I was going to act as devil's advocate here, because there might be some listeners right now that are kind of thinking that while large investments from like identified, documented investors might seem to improve the quality of contributions, it does, however, exclude a large portion of the population from participating in, and it even might perhaps shrink the ground floor for early opportunity to a small area in which only uh, quote unquote the rich can afford to occupy so is there a worry in that regards on perhaps losing money due to excluding the general public for now well right now we're conducting a SAFT and people can participate by going to saftlaunch.com that is available only to accredited investors regulations and we're doing our very best uh, to bend over backwards to comply with SEC regulations now this is only in the pre-sale where the SAFT is treated as a security we will be doing a ICO in March of 2018 and that ICO will be available to the general public and they don't have to be accredited investors to participate in that. But it's only for the SAFT pre-sale that they do. Thank you for the clarity. I'd like to um, kind of switch notes a little bit. Let's get a little bit into the tech, and um, let's get a little bit into the algebra of data. So I picked up the book. Good book. I'm uh, brushing up off my math chops. And so what I'm thinking is that if, you know, if you're only asking for these three points of data, this birth date, zip code, and uh, gender, then are those essentially the elements and then you can couple those with metadata of whatever entertainment that you choose? Is that? Oh, um, I, I just want to be clear that that information is only in the minimum viable product. And I'm going to let Robin talk about data algebra, but that I'm just uh, when I mentioned that that's only for the first version of our product. We are building a personal secure vault 
for individuals to store all of their relevant data, but that will come over time. And Robin, why don't you speak to metadata and the data algebra? Sure. The, the problem with data, you can kind of um, see this when you look at any computer, whether it's a, um, Windows or it's a Mac, uh, and you just look at a file system and there are names of the various files. Um, the information you have about the data that's stored in, for instance, a file system, which I would call the metadata. And the metadata is really quite primitive. There isn't much there. You don't necessarily know what's in the file. You know, I might know what type of file it is, but very little else. Um, what data algebra allows you to do is to create a rich metadata environment. Um, and the potential of data algebra is, is actually quite bewildering when you look at it because, for instance, um, it's quite possible to represent um, really large tracts of text, let's say, I mean, this is one of the hard problems, but data algebra fixes it, um, as a collection of metadata in terms of words related to words and the relationships between words. In other words, some of the structure of a collection of data is actually needs to be represented in metadata if you want to, want to understand what's in a file before you actually process it. And data algebra does that in a way that nothing else can. And that's what was proved out over seven years of R&D, which was it wasn't just that it created the mathematics and believed that the mathematics applied. They built prototype product after prototype product to test various data structures and to see how they could be processed with data algebra. And where we are right now in terms of data algebra is, as far as we know, there isn't any metadata situation it can't deal with. Now, on top of that, data algebra, because it has a, an awareness of the structure of data, allows um, automatic transformations of data from one structure to another structure, and also can be used to accelerate access to data in various environments. So it's got a lot more to it than the metadata um, uh, capability of it, but it's the metadata capability that I think is going to be most important to us because we're going to be creating a personal secure vault and we're going to expect individuals to put any kind of data in that, whether it's, you know, document data or, or whether it's personal database type data, whether it's photographs, whether it's video, whatever. Um, we are going to create a rich metadata structure on top of that. But that's down the road. I mean, we're starting off with small amount of data and the basic application of uh, the algebraics network is going to be advertising. We'll expand that over time, but we begin with advertising and we begin, because we don't need much data about an individual, um, we'll begin with a small amount of data, but that will be added to for the, for the benefit of creating uh, reasonable tar target lists by advertisers. And then to expand on the book, what I was most kind of fascinated by was uh, you single-handedly kind of predicted that all of this was going to happen. And I did, for, for someone who's not so much enthralled in math, I want to know if maybe if you can give some context to that and kind of elaborate. It's, I mean, talking about the book that I wrote in 1999. Yeah, so if we're going to apply some kind of uh, landscape with data, data algebra being applied. 
Sorry, I'm not, I don't, I'm not understanding the question. I wrote something in 1999 about the algebra, data algebra book very recently. Are we talking about the data algebra book? Oh, yeah. I, I want to go back all the way to 1999 and how you kind of had the foresight. Okay, well, you know, that, what that happened, what I was doing then, I was um, a technology analyst in the UK and the internet had taken off and I was trying to, demo, well, I was trying to speculate on where the, uh, the internet could go. And it became very, very obviously, and this was before Google even existed, to be honest. Um, and it became very, very obvious that the data was what was valuable. And if the data was what was valuable, and at the time the internet was being paid for um, through um, advertising, um, it, it occurred to me that individuals would not want their data to be exploited without them in some way or other being rewarded for that kind of exploitation. And in the years that followed, that's exactly what happened. The data was exploited. We're now in a situation where um, Facebook, which is possibly the major um, aggregator of personal data in the world right now, is able to point machine learning algorithms at any portion of an individual's data and deduce things about the individual that they themselves do not know. Well, we don't think that that is actually equitable. We think that it would be much better for the individual if they could use that kind of technology and use it to their own benefit. So they could know, for instance, that they have a tendency to buy shoes of a different color or cars or a particular type or things like that. You know, that because of their profile, they're likely to, in one way or another, like certain things and dislike other things. Well, it's, it's not that some big company should have that data. They should have that data themselves. And that's what that book was predicting, but the technology to make it happen, the blockchain, didn't arise for another 15 years. Mm. Fortune-telling skills. You got fortune-telling skills, Robin. So yeah. I guess to uh, – so let's, take it, let's make it make sense for the audience a little bit. Are you um, – are you building your own blockchain, or are you, or are you leveraging other blockchains that currently exist? Well, for our initial launch, we're going to be launching an Ethereum, but we're already building our own blockchain built on data algebra principles. We want to get our token out there. We want to start building the audience. Our goal is to bring cryptocurrency to the mainstream really be the company that crosses the chasm. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. It was a book written 20 years ago about how technology gets to the mainstream. And right now the blockchain and crypto is really in the early adopter phase. And how do we get it mainstream uh, is through the application that we're developing, which is download the app and they get paid to watch movies and television trailers. And once that audience grows and grows and grows, we're going to be adding more and more and more functionality, including our own blockchain built on data algebra. I like the sound of that so much because I've watched maybe 15 movie trailers this week. So I wouldn't mind getting paid for watching movie yeah, trailers. You, you got paid. <laughs> yeah. Some of them weren't even good. So at least I would have got paid for watching bad trailers. Go ahead, Cello. I yeah. cut you off, I think. 
Yeah, I just want to say, so if you go to their website, they have, they've kind of broke down all the white papers. You know, there's a token sale economics and kind of how it works. And then there's a comprehensive white paper, lots of information for people to kind of brush up and get familiar with this. So to take it back to the tech, are, are you worried or planning ahead about the scalability of these technologies? Because right now, you know, it's no mystery to anyone involved in the space that Ethereum uh, scalability is an issue. Bitcoin scalability is an issue. So have you thought about some of the, I guess, solutions that currently exist to roll into the blockchain to, to kind of assess that and see that problem coming? Yeah, the, it's a, this is a complicated topic. So th there are a number of aspects. So when you actually look at a blockchain and you look at um, the scalability of the blockchain, what you're actually looking at is the number of transactions that be, can be processed over a given period of time. When you get a problem like that in computing, the natural solution is through sharding. That is to divide the problem up on, uh, across a large number of servers and have each server do the work in parallel. Um, so we've looked at that kind of activity. We've kind of um, already um, uh, sized where we think we'll have to be. And if you take, for instance, the Visa network, the Visa network is processing 3,000 transactions per second, which requires an awful lot of computer iron to do. Um, we expect to be doing more than that, and therefore there's a whole series of strategies that allows for the scalability and the sharding of things. But at the moment, we're thinking about it. But, I mean, if you really wanted to talk in depth about this, you'd have to talk to the development team um, because it's their particular headache. But we're starting on Ether. We don't intend to, we don't expect to continue on Ether uh, indefinitely. And scalability is, in our opinion, the major obstacle that we have to overcome. Um, but, you know, technology has done this. It's not like this is an unsolved problem. The kind of, um, uh, the kind of uh, volumes of activity um, that are required to um, bring this to heel. And they've been dealt with before. It's not like, you know, it, there hasn't been vast amounts of data and there hasn't been vast amounts of transactions. There has. Um, it's just that it will be much easier if it can all be done on commodity processes in a sharding way. It will be much cheaper for the whole network and it will be much easier to write the software. So that's kind of where we are right now in terms of that. The, um, the algebra of data itself, is going to help in that because a lot of the various things that we were um, that were done uh, in algebraic data uh, in order to test out the algebra were actually about accelerating um, various kinds of computer activity, particularly queries, and they were getting you know in certain situations they're getting 100 to one, 1,000 to one improvement. So we have that on our side. We know that certain problems we have already solved. Um, to solve them in the blockchain world is going to be slightly different because when you're in the blockchain world, you're going to want to record um, a lot of things that are going on. In other words, the amount of <coughs> logging of events 
and logging onto a blockchain of events is going to be much greater than would be in just a, a database situation. So we understand it's a complex problem, and we understand that we're going to, I mean, first of all, we're going to have to own architecture, and then we're going to, in one way or another, have to plan the architecture to allow us to scale. Because the other side of the game is, is, is the business itself that we're intending to do. If this starts to become a popular thing, we will go from, you know, tens of thousands to users, uh, users to millions of users remarkably quickly. And we don't want to fall over when that happens. That's absolutely, we don't want to do that. So we're planning right now to build an architecture that will allow us to cope with that kind of extraordinary um, rise in volumes. So without giving away too much of like the KFC special recipe or the Coca-Cola Coca -Cola special recipe of algebra of, of data, you know, how does it give you that edge? Like, what's your unique position? Uh, oh, God, there's a number of the, there, there are a number of algorithms that are required in order to make stuff go faster that um, data algebra can do, on which we have patents in actual fact. And some of them are simply about intelligent caching. You know, the, there are only two or three mechanisms in the end that actually make things go a lot faster in computers. One of them is sharding. That's just parallel, division of a workload in a parallel environment. The other is caching, is to, to take a proportion of data from a slow device onto a fast device. The d data algebra is just brilliant at that capability. Because it, it doesn't only cache things, but it does it in an intelligent way that's beyond the capability of, let's say, the human mind, the DBA. It just does it mathematically. It's kind of, um, it's just kind of automatic. So we have that, you know. But there are other things that um, we will be applying that data algebra will help with. But in terms of performance, oh, in terms of performance, it's a godsend. Okay. Let's, uh, uh, I did want to talk about how ambitious the scaling is going to be at this company. We're going from a very small company of, of 15 to 20 to 100. Uh, so I kind of want to talk about how you know, the, the, the developers are going to fit into that and how that's going to affect the product. Well, once we get to our ICO, I mean, we're going to be trying to attract literally millions and millions of people and there's going to be several projects going on you know this is a very professional experience management team we've had experience scaling operations so we're going to do it in a very professional way uh, there'll be teams assigned and agile environments created and you know scaling the software up, um, production uh, is something right in our wheelhouse we're also going to have to scale the marketing where um, it's all about developing audience. So how do you create that viral ecosystem and a, a, a whole family of influencers, whether it's celebrities or uh, celebrities on social media that are promoting that people can earn cryptocurrency by viewing ads. And that's really what we're doing here, is creating, for the first time, 
a place where people can monetize and control and own their own data versus the internet behemoths who control and exploit data. Now the individuals are taking back ownership of their data and they're going to be the ones properly compensated. So we think we're going to be able to create a viral environment where people are all going to want to download this application on their phone. That's awesome. I, I hope that there's this nascent property to all this where people are going to start to at least, you know, it, it might softly force people to learn about where their data is going and how it's going there. And I think that would be a nice, you know, byproduct of all this, uh, given it does go viral. So hats off to all the work being done there at Algebraics Data. We just have one final question to ask the both of you. And uh, it's a toughie, so I hope you're ready. And that is, in 10 words or less, can you describe blockchain? Describe the blockchain? Yeah. Is that what you're asking? In 10 sure. words, 10 or, words less. or less. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an immutable ledger based upon... Um, the application of hashing um, in a distributed environment, distributed server environment. I think I've used 10 words. Ooh, that was 11. Oh, one over. <laughs> Nothing happens, though. It's not like the price is right where you just yeah. go sadly back to the audience. But it's good. It's good. Not a lot of, not a lot of people could say under like 25 words. So <laughs> that's pretty good. What about you, Charlie? A decentralized ledger where all data is immutable in blocks. Oh, we'll that's take an, that. That's nine words. So the average is 10 there. So <laughs> between, between both of you, we're good to go. Um, well, well, I tried. To, I did my best. Yeah. It's good. Um, it, it's a really tough question to answer uh, because this stuff is all so new. Uh, but it, for us, we found that just taking the energy to try and distill it down to something simple is a good jump off point for people to say, hey, like, oh, OK, if, you know, this fancy tech can be distilled down, then it maybe it's not that intimidating after all. So, uh, Charlie, you got anything? Yeah, I just want to say I'm excited because, uh, you know, Charlie survived the dot com bus 10 years ago and uh, he's going to take on this new dot com landscape of Crypto, SAFs, ICOs, etc., and uh, 2018 is going to be a good year. Any words of wisdom to impart the audience with? Well, uh, you know, thank you for your, uh, you know, having us on the show, and we really do believe that Algebraics will be the company to bring cryptocurrency mainstream and cross that chasm. Uh, we want hundreds of millions of people owning cryptocurrency and getting paid in Alex coin for their data and to be able to view advertisements. And we're very excited. Cool. I'll drop all the links uh, to the SAFT launch on our show notes. So everyone can uh, dive in head first. And that was the interview with one Charlie Silver and Robin Bloor from Algebraics Data. Um, I'll say data or data. I say data. I say I say data. There's no wrong way. 
I say data because I want it to be different than datum. So if I say data and datum, I don't want anybody ever to get confused if I'm saying either or. So I say data and datum. Okay, that's that's a legitimate reason for for choosing one or the other. I say data because that's what they said on Star Trek: The Next Generation and Blade Runner. And I also say data because it's phonetically correct. Oh, by the way, Blade Runner 2049 is boring. <laughs> Everyone with says the, the Gosling is in it, though. Every person on Twitter, every person in real life says it's like a flawless execution of sci-fi. And I, I fell asleep 30 minutes in. I woke up and I held on. And it's just boring. So I don't know what they were watching. I'm going to lose a lot of fans here. Or a lot of a lot of people are going to stop taking me seriously. But I fall asleep on the original Blade Runner every damn time. Every time. I fall asleep some point when those cars start start flying and then i wake up again whenever the robot is like talking to harrison ford and saying all that really deep stuff that i should be paying attention to but i'm like i don't know what happened why is it raining and then i fall back asleep like i just that movie can't keep me i need transforming robots and explosions you know the the ryan gosling eats a cereal and he makes all those weird faces it's just three hours of that (laughs) <laughs> just three hours of that. It's garbage. <laughs> well, anywho, um, speaking of movies, if you guys paid attention to the interview, then what ALX coin and what they're really trying to do is they're trying to stimulate stoke, uh, you know, the flames of mass adoption by having you guys like get paid to enjoy entertainment, get paid to do the things you do on the internet already. You like a, you like that brand new Ludacris album? Listen to it, get paid for it. Not even that. Like, it's like, did, did we all watch the Last Jedi trailer this week? Yes, we did. Everyone did. Imagine did. if we got paid. Oof. Corey, you didn't? I didn't. I didn't know I was out. I'm going to go watch it now, though. You too busy for Star Wars, man? That's un-American shit. I don't watch, I don't watch television. Like, I don't. I haven't seen Star a Trek. commercial. It's yeah, I watch Star I watch, Wars. Like downloaded episodes of Star Trek. It's on Netflix. Nobody watches television. You're saying no. I, I'm not saying I caught this trailer on TV. This is 2017. YouTube. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't like get on YouTube and search. I don't like just like browse YouTube. You know, I don't do that either. Which was, is why I'm surprised. It was on the front YouTube page of Reddit. Like, yeah, it was. For, for <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to prod Corey until he just admits that he just missed the boat. He just didn't have. click on it. I mean, I must have. I guess I was doing like, I guess I didn't spend much time on Reddit this last week. Somebody sent you. Somebody played the the trailer outdoors on a projector screen right next to you, Corey. Look, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. <laughs> Speaking of, um, speaking of of things that I did last week, I went to uh, the CoinScore soft launch event. Hey, I think they're gonna be they're gonna be adding a new show to our to our network, talking about uh, specific coin scores that they got each week. So a coin score is basically just like a an amalgamation of a lot of different metrics of how to evaluate projects, platforms, ICOs in the cryptocurrency space. And they yeah. at the end, it, uh, it all ends up with a score. 
you can kind of get an idea of how somebody's doing. And then it breaks out into all the different things and see like, you know, why they got the score they did. As well as like price data and all that stuff. It's a really good, I think it's going to end up being a really good nonstop shop for getting all the information you want in regards to projects in the space, how they work and why they're performing the way they are. So that's like, that's a good show, right? I can imagine people coming on, listening to that show about new projects to kind of get an idea of like, because that's kind of what we do. We just do it, you know, one project at a time. And we aren't digging into the, like, the back history of who their projects are and whether or not they've had, mm-hmm. you know, securities fraud and things like that. They're doing all the due diligence so that you don't have to do it. Or like, yeah. you can do it in one, one place. That's what uh, I like about they it. They're paying like- us. I just think it's cool, and that's what we preach about all the time. Yep, and we're gonna roll them on into the network and have a, the Coin Score podcast. We're really original with our naming convention, by the way. <laughs> um, but the reason I like Coin Score is because, like, I'll have a bajillion ideas, but I'm mostly too lazy to see them come through fruition. And this is one of those ideas I had early in the ICO game. Whenever I saw like ten in one week. Yep. And I was like, yeah, man, somebody needs to make this so that people can understand more about these projects or people are just going to be doing money grabs. And somebody should do a good job with it, do their due diligence. And then, oh. so then I interviewed their – their. Uh, go ahead. I don't know if you know. Like they, they listened to that, and that's why they started. You didn't know that? Listen to me? They and- started because you said that, and I said, that's a good idea. I'm going to make that. Are you fucking with me or are they – because I know you're hanging out with them. Yeah, I'm fucking with you. They didn't, they didn't say that. Okay. I was All about right. to feel really happy on the inside, <laughs> really warm and shit, and you just ruined it for me. Sorry. But anyways, yeah, this is this is one of those um this is one of those moments where like you have a great idea, but you're just too lazy to make it. Well, they're not too lazy and they're making it and they're doing a lot of good work. Um so if you want to hear more about CoinScore, there's a block channel podcast about it. Just go to our website and search CoinScore and it'll pop up. If it doesn't, then you don't know how to search for things. And then um, listen to it. Um, but we're going to talk about it in the second I, half. Of I had the show. something else I want to say. Like, So I guess we were looking into a lot of our statistics and realized that um, iTunes only keeps the last 100 items of a feed. And so if you would like to get back into further like historical episodes from us, from any of our shows, uh, which is like episode 121 or something like that for us, anything after that, you have to come to the website, bitcoinpodcast.com or go to our Libsyn feed. That's basically the only way to get that type of information is because you can't get it from iTunes, which is what most podcast apps index when you search for things you want more you want more of us go to the website if any of our listeners wants to build us like a solution to that problem holla (laughs) but we gotta get outside of youtube yeah yeah we not youtube sorry itunes itunes SoundCloud lets you do all of them, but it's SoundCloud. If it weren't for Chance the Rapper, they wouldn't even exist. So. SoundCloud. I don't um, know. Maybe. We should just port everything over to YouTube. 
Dude, people love you too. That would take so long. There's got to be some type of API or bot or some shit that will take your RSS feed and just slowly upload it to YouTube. This is one of those ideas where if we're not lazy, we can build it and probably probably wow. stand to make some money off of the idea. But it's like, nah. I'll just keep things going. Yep. Keep things going the way they're going. There you go, guys. There's your idea. Yeah, make a way for podcasters to port over their content easily. Boom. Got yourself money. Um, what else do we need to talk about? The price. Do we need to talk about the price? We talked about the I price mean, earlier with kind of how Bitcoin works. I it's mean, rap. like we didn't say what it is, though. It's past 6000 yeah, hope you got 6, some. Thousand, baby. What the Go hell is yourself? What the hell is Bitcoin gold? Why am I getting messages about airdropping Bitcoin gold? That's oh just another boy. confusion oh naming boy. naming. People are just basically you now naming about, tokens uh, off of Bitcoin did, and then airdropping things to just confuse the shit out of people and try and yep, create money so out of nowhere. That's how ridiculous things are getting right now. Is that there's another fork going on called Bitcoin Gold? That's just another fork of Bitcoin. Like it's it's getting it's gonna get absurd if we if if like the users don't I don't know how to stop it like the absurdity of it you don't people have now realized that you can make money doing that because there's so much ignorance in the space that people will eventually like try and sell it try and use it try and hoard it to then as an investment in case it becomes something like investors are so greedy in this space that they're just gonna throw money at anything and so if you just make something. That is a digital scarcity and tie tap into some of the massive ignorance of the space, you'll probably become wealthy. And it's a shitty way to become wealthy, but it's it's I, I think it's true. I think what's great is that given our perspective and the way that we are in this space, is that like in conversations we'll be able to know where someone's head at, depending on like what they talk, like somebody's like, Hey, do you need that Bitcoin gold? I'm going to be like, get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> get, you get your, you get the fuck out of your, you get it. You get out of here. Like, I hate that. Even if I'm going to be rich, Corey's going to be like, that was a, that was a shitty way to get rich, Marcello. And then I'm going to feel bad. <laughs> if, it, if you get rich from a shitty way, I mean, we could, we could probably have gotten decently rich if we would have like, done a lot of what like bad the bad crypto podcast is doing and just like shilling out as much as possible but i just yeah i don't know like i now think our authenticity later way. on down the line is going to be worth so much more if we don't do that we shill in a responsible way now we have the announcement show which is a totally compartmentalized shill cannon that we blast <laughs> out to you guys <laughs> but that's really a psa because i think we could charge way more than we do but it's not about that. Well, at least bring, they're, bring they're, at least handing us, they're handing us uh, ICOs that are at least worth something nowadays. Uh, All right. Just Corey's right. We could be we could be pretty wealthy in the space. We could be picking we, ICOs that are just willing to throw money because they're trying to make so much money. And I feel like it, like at least in the announcements, there's novel applications. I mean, it is shilly. Maybe I don't know. It's it's not what I want this show to be about, but I know that there are shows that need to be like that. And so why not have one 
because there's so much desire yeah. for people to learn about projects and you at least get to talk to the people who are creating the projects, which is information you just can't get from a website or Reddit, right? You can't learn a lot of things about the people who are creating these projects just by reading about mm -hmm. the project. And you only get that through having a conversation with them, which is what shows like that thing. provide. But I don't want this show to become that. So it's good. I've done three announcements episodes now. And these projects, it's not like they're – it's not rinky-dink money grabs, the, the, the people that I'm talking to. Like they have strong teams. They have people with very, very like just a hell of a resume or a CV, whichever one you want to use depending on, you know – what you care about somebody's work history like it's it, these aren't money grabs like these people are putting in hard work maybe some of their ideals aren't necessarily vibing with the, the the greater crypto community but some of these ideas are just valid like being able to sell your transportation data that's a good one like you can do all kinds of stuff with that if you want to but i don't know well so, the cool thing about what our guests are doing is it what the SAF does basically means that the money raised, it's going to be used to build the whole blockchain first. And then once completed, then investors are going to receive their tokens. And then it'll be added to exchanges. You so have product first. Way. You have to do that. Yeah. Like it's, it's a, it's a, you know, agreement for a future token. It's, you have mm -hmm. to build a token somewhere. <laughs> Tokens got to mm -hmm. come from something. So it's all about validity and trust, and and um, it, it, it's cool because you know Tom, Dick, and Harry can't get in with a couple bitcoins. Like these folks, with the ability to throw some money into an investment without worrying about making the rent the next month. These are like accredited people. So I don't know. It's gonna be cool. Do you think we're ever gonna get past the point where Tom, Dick, and Harry get bodied out of financial? Uh, Financial participation just because they don't they don't have enough money to make yeah, money. For sure. The the late adopters, the FOMO. No, I mean like as as a species, like it's not oh. possible, is it? Like there's always gonna be the haves and have nots. Did that just get so deep you, you turned off cello? I'm looking at your video it feed and it looks like you decided to go to a different website when I asked that question right now. <laughs> You were like not contributing to that one. I, I figured know. a question on that scale, Corey would take that. I was considering <laughs> it. I was thinking about it. <laughs> I just watched you go to a new website. It looked like you typed with extra like emphasis on I'm not even gonna try to take a swing. <laughs> You're like, ain't fucking with that one. Click. But I guess we'll see actually oh. recently because I guess the, the antithesis of haves and haves nots or capitalistic society is something like a universal basic income. I mean, it's, it's moving in the direction of everyone gets something no matter what, you don't have to work for it, which is the kind of the opposite of, like, I guess, a purely capitalistic free market society. And, and what's, what's interesting about that, like it's, it's almost going to be mandatory to have something like a universal basic income because we're about to lay off, like at least in the U.S., we're moving towards technology that's going to lay off the most, like the highest volume job in America, which is truck drivers. 
like autonomous vehicles is going to lay off all truck drivers and it's going to be safer if more efficient, cheaper, so on and so forth in the process of doing that. But like when you start, when you do things like that, you're putting a lot of people out of the job. And if they don't have a way to get paid, like there just simply aren't that many jobs they can take, even if they like had the skills to get them. Something's got to change. Right. And so what's, what's cool is like right now, because we've built this new way of doing monetary exchange on the internet digitally and creating digital scarcity, people are experimenting with these new monetary policies like universal basic income because you can disperse that money really, really quickly and transparently and, and, and fairly. Well, you can't not necessarily people are doing it. And yeah. like, we're going to see that type of theater play out and see how it works. Cause I don't think we've had really good examples of whether or not that type of economic policy does work or is effective at a large scale. Uh, and it's something's going to be needed when we start laying off all these people. Mm. And as you're saying that one of our good mutual friends posts in our other Slack, artificial intelligence learns to learn entirely on its own. Great. That's the whole point. Join the Slack. <laughs> what did you say, Jello? What Slack are you talking about? Tom. Oh. Um, Sorry, I don't know where I was going. Let's wrap it up. I don't want to wrap it up, man. I want to talk forever. Let's wrap it. We have an interview in in 30 minutes. Oh. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up, guys. Uh, You know, as always, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Tell your friends. You know, if one of you guys were awesome that's listening right now, you took us up with a way to incentivize listeners to spread our stuff. We want to go viral. Like, what would be so bad about that? We'd be awesome to go on CNBC. Can you imagine that Asian lady who's always like, uh, what do you think about their their uh, P.E. ratio talking to me? we like, I don't give a damn. Was you that your Trisha Takanawa impression? You wouldn't say that. Yeah. You'd be so you'd be so nervous and professional. I would be, you'd be so boring. Be I would be boring. really boring to the people that actually watch that show because like, I'm not going to get really animated about it. I'd just be like. Yeah, I mean their PE ratio is kind of good, but like, what are their products that are that they're coming out with? Because that's what's important. Like, and they'd be you like, should. "What are you even talking about, bro?" You should have an alter ego called TVD, and when you're on TV, you get really animated and overpassionate, and just be like a character. Well, if you made a token, we know what it would the acronym would be. TVD. TVD. TVD token. Algebraic's token is the Alex token. Alex. Alex. Um, Well, uh, what do we do? The BTC podcast on Twitter, at the BTC podcast. Uh, Cello tweets. Tweet at him. He'll tweet at you back. Um, Join the Slack. Core, you tweet too, right? Like, what's your at Core Petty? Yeah, at Core Petty. C-O-R. You need to get on your Twitter game so you could be... Notice that the most I, – I, I saw that Coindesk poll that went around about most influential people in the space, and it's because you're not active on Twitter. Yeah, well, um, so what? Well, yeah, but when I do see a, a tweet from Corey, I'm like, oh, oh, snap. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He, if he what? just picks up him? that frequency just a little bit, like three tweets a week maybe. 
All right. I will, I will try to increase my social network awareness so that people know more dude. of who I am. Your ability to social network is going to be like currency one day. I know you saw that episode of Black Mirror. Ugh. I have no desire to spend a good portion of my life tweeting. Not that much, man. It's like, it, it takes five minutes to tweet. You think That's of something thing. while That's you're the on thing, the though, right? Like, Think about this. It's, it's, I, I have so many brain hours available to me every single day. And I got a full-time job <laughs> studying this stuff. Like, I don't want... It's true. Like, You can only use your brain in like a high capacity for so many hours per day. And, and I like to like, I, I really enjoy my free time. I really enjoy like spending time with my wife and my friends. And I work like a, a job where I have to use a lot of those brain hours every day. And that's studying the space and trying to build things that are going to work or at least figuring out like where applications of this technology could, could be going or what vulnerabilities are. And then I do this podcast. We have to research who we're talking to and how, like, all the things around building out this podcast and this network. I don't want to. I don't want to like take over more of those brain hours by crafting tweets so that people like me. I don't know. It, like, just just you have spend questions. I'll answer. 30, I spend, spend so much time minutes, on the Slack. Spend thirty minutes on a Sunday afternoon and make twenty-five tweets and then schedule them. Dude, Corey is a real life Rick. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, I'm looking at this picture in Slack of the Rick, your icon. <laughs> you <laughs> I feel are, like if, you. When Corey's like 80, he's he's totally gonna have like interdimensional guns that he just goes into other worlds and f- fucks off and comes back. And <laughs> well, you were saying this before, right? Like it's it's like shut the fuck up and build stuff. Like so many people yeah. are spending all their time on social media trying to become somebody. They're not spending any time building stuff. They're just spending any time talking about building stuff. Shut up that and build was stuff. A, yeah, we, that was a tweet that I retweeted while we were uh, in between takes of the show is that I, I stumbled upon this guy's Twitter page and he said, hey, like one of the most annoying things about this space is that everybody's trying to prove how smart they are. We get it. You're all geniuses. Now go build something. Like that's, yes, that needs to be put on a placard. And that needs to be said before every convention that needs to just be a mantra that this entire space adopts is that shut the fuck up and go build something and let the people that are good at talking figure it out and talk about it. But anyways, we said we were going to wrap up a long time ago. We'd be talking. Play. Shout out to Zoe Saldana. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, shout out to Stephen King movies on Netflix because they're really good. Nineteen twenty two and Gerald's game came out last week and they're both really good. Go check them out. Yep. Um uh if anybody wants to see me on the new Marvel's Capcom, uh I don't it's even know what my gamer tag is now. What's my gamer tag? Black sauce oh. for Galati? No. No. I think it's like Black Sauce double seven point five or something. I think it's play the outro. Play. Shout out to Zoe Saldana. Uh, shout, shout out to um, what was her name? What was her name? Oh, well, I can't. Oh, the tennis player girl. Serena Black Williams. Shut up. No, not Serena Williams. Okay. Play. <laughs> Sharapova. The outro.